Welcome to Gin and Topic. I'm Sarah. And I'm Anya. And we don't know anything about anything, really, but we do like to drink gin. That's true. So we decided each week we would drink gin with an expert on something, and hopefully they can teach us something. Awesome. Lovely. Star Trek. Agreed. Okay, so this week... This week, we are talking to Dr. David Force. David! And Dr. David Force is the Director of Music at St. Ronan's School in Kent. Oh, St. Ronan's in Kent, darling. I imagine that's probably quite a nice, fancy school. I don't know if that's just something I've made up. Well, he's the Director of Music there. Um... And also, he is um, passionate about early music. As so in he like does n- not early years music, oh. as in early music, as oh, in really right. long yeah, yeah. time okay. ago. Yeah, I got you now. So he researches into, um, or he's done his research into medieval and early Baroque periods. What is the Baroque yeah. period? See, this is what we're going to have to right, ask okay. him because I know roughly medieval type stuff and yeah, I know yeah. there's Baroque music most of my history knowledge comes from polar histories so i know the medieval period for the gore okay do you know renaissance yeah yeah, yeah. I know about the renaissance what do you know about renaissance well i studied christina rossetti poems at a level oh, darling yes so i know about the renaissance so what did she teach you about the renaissance that she was a horny motherfucker but for god <laughs> like she was oh, really god. horny for god yeah yeah. Well, I think that's, that's that's what I know about the Renaissance. <laughs> and that's Renaissance music mm-hmm. is what we're going to look at today. And okay. I think maybe they were quite horny for God and horny for each other. I'm going to I'm just going to say it. They Possibly. probably were. They probably Possibly. were whether they could be or not. But she was part of the Renaissance her and her brothers. I don't really know the difference between medieval and Renaissance and the clothes are very different and yeah, yeah, I think it's just all a long time ago. It is, yeah. So our question, our okay. question of the week is, what were Renaissance musical instruments like? Oh, okay. That's quite a niche question for us. I like that. Yeah. So we're going to look at what is, what was what Renaissance is- music? What were the instruments like? Do, we, do you know any Renaissance musical instruments? No, because why would I know that? Did Rossetti not mention any of them? No, Rossetti was too busy talking about goblins sucking juices off women's boobies. I know, the only thing I know is any films like medieval lutes. Oh, lutes, yes. I've recently watched The Witcher. There you go, everyone can drink from my pop culture reference of the week. And there is a bard in it who plays the lute. Yeah, yeah. see, lutes come out a lot. And but are they funny trumpety thing? things and sort of long? Oh, what's the yeah. one where they the announce arrival? Yeah, announcing so and so, so and so. Yeah, yeah. I don't really. I don't know what they're called. I, I feel like we're going to be told like. that most of our knowledge is wrong. Um, right. Important things. We are drinking gin. Not any old gin, though. Not I'm really excited gin. about this gin. I'm going to be slurring. So this was recommended to us by David because it comes from down his way. 
oh, comes from well. Kent. Oh, lovely. Yes. Yeah. And it is the world's strongest gin. 95%. Oh, scary. That is bonkers. So, and it even has warning strong gin. And it Extreme comes with a tiny little beaker to pour your correct unit it does because so i find this really interesting because it isn't about just getting really really sloshed on something that's extreme for some people it's not (laughs) for me so they have made this so here we go developed by scientists with a taste for adventure and pushing the limits of possibility um it's produced to pack more punch and flavour drop by drop so you can have right. a tiny bit of it. So get all the flavour. And get all the gin flavours. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, they've even got tasting notes here. Got appearance, crystal clear with shimmering brightness. Oh. Oh, that's And David. here's David. And we can get on to the really important thing, which is the gin. Yes. Oh, the gin, yes. We, we've got things ready, but we haven't actually started You say you've got things ready. I have no ice pour. in my glass, so, oh, yeah. which is a travesty, I think. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much. So we have this bottle of the strongest gin in the world and our little, I love the fact that it comes with a little measuring beaker. That's it's very scientific, isn't it? Yes, it makes you take it really seriously, the amounts that you put in. Mm -hmm. It does, which we never normally take seriously. (laughs) quite. Slosh it in, exactly, yes. (laughs) So David, where did you come across the gin? Well, Anno is relatively local to where I live. It's um, a distillery based in Marden in Kent. And they released this earlier this this autumn. And as a, a sort of veteran drink, gin drinker, I thought I really must give this a go. And it's remarkably good. But it is genuinely the the strongest gin in the world. It's been verified by whoever verifies the strength of gin. Um, <laughs> so I thought, gosh, you know, this is an absolute must-have experience as a, as a gin drinker. Yeah, definitely. And so, and brand new, as you said, this autumn. That's right, yes. Oh, Ooh, that's, that's very really exciting. exciting. They've got serving suggestions mm-hmm. on the side. They've got a light gin tea for a lower alcohol, mm-hmm. um, pour a five mil measure of gin over ice and top with 120 ml of tonic water that's never been so precise (laughs) and garnish with a slice of grapefruit then they've got the strong gin tea which is the one we're going for of course um measure 25 ml of gin top up with 120 ml of tonic water and garnish with bruised thyme so we've got some thyme in there already and i'm going for the 25 ml right there's one I'll do mine, yeah. I'm Actually, that looks this. like a pretty that much a like dram a measure. Yeah. yeah. Now, excellent. It's really strong, isn't it? Yeah, but it's quite, um, it doesn't smell, you know how vodka always smells like nail varnish remover and it's really gross. That smells really nice in a weird way. Which, interesting, given how strong the yeah. um, alcohol content is. So now I don't have a measuring jug <laughs> for the tonic. <laughs> We're just going to eyeball it. Let's go for it. Yes, absolutely. I reckon that's about. I reckon that's about you know twenty-five. Actually, it's really cloudy. It's yeah, there is a it cloud. Is. Yep, it's one of those gins that does that. But I think that adds to the to the visual excitement as well as the taste sensation. Well, here it is. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers indeed. So, what do you think? Wow. 
That's, that might be my favourite gin, yeah. It's so clean and almost lemony. Well, do you know, the first thing I got when I put my nose in, I was thinking mm. of um, cloudy lemonade. Yes. Because of it yes. looking cloudy and you get that. You do. And I think because we've got this bruised thyme in mm. here as well, yeah. it's very gardeny. Mm. Yeah. But there's no gimmick here, apart from the fact that it's very strong. This is not one of those flavoured gins that sort of take mm. you away from the, the solid gin experience. This is traditional to what everything that gin should be i think it's great it's delicious it's tremendous i could drink a bit too much of that I yeah think. Mm. which we probably shouldn't considering <laughs> how strong Hell. it is <laughs> oh, i don't know but you see there is the paradox because the if you go for the the smaller um, amount then you're getting um the full sort of flavor punch which because it's you know if i sometimes drink my gin neat i have to confess just with a bit of ice so you, re- you really get to know what your gin tastes like if you do that um but you can't do that with this it's far too strong for that so if you go for that that small amount in your thing the actual alcoholic content in your gin is is quite small even though you're drinking the world's strongest so mm-hmm. there's a curious paradox there but if you're having to be a bit careful about your alcohol intake then the gin to drink is the world's strongest isn't yeah. that bizarre mm. marvelous yeah it's really bizarre because you can then make it a really nice long refreshing and i'd quite i mm. think i'd really like this in the summer as yeah. a really long refreshing mm. gin mm. Thank you for really introducing good, us yeah. to well, that. Very glad you like it. That's good. That's a good start. Yeah, really, really good. Mm. So we are talking, our question today uh, is about Renaissance music and what Renaissance musical instruments are like and what the sort of music of the renaissance time would be like especially in the household mm-hmm. that's quite a lot of that's, questions that's many questions in one but we will attempt to ask them all <laughs> <laughs> gosh where do we start um, with all that <laughs> and that's the thing we were saying we actually know really very little. little even back to i couldn't actually tell you what renaissance is mm-hmm Renaissance is rebirth, of course, literally. And it was that period when scientists and musicians and artists and people in all walks of life really were were sort of reconnecting with that striving for knowledge that had been, I suppose, impossible during the time when you're busy sort of having wars left, right and centre, spending all your resources on weaponry and and killing your best people. So it was a time when they could just relax, sit back. If they'd had gin, they'd have probably drunk it then and start to discover things about the world around you again. Mm -hmm. And as far as music was concerned, it was a really interesting time because not only were they thinking about the way that music sounded and how they could write new types of music, but they were also exploring new technologies of making instruments. And I guess that's what we're looking at a bit today. So there were whole new um, families of instruments and and wonderful new sounds that were being discovered at this time. And so what period of time are we actually talking? Where is Renaissance in history? Um, so we're looking at 16th century mostly. That's when the, the organology, the science of instruments really got going and when these new sounds started to come out. Okay, so 16th century. That doesn't help me. If you can find the Horrible History song, that'll help me. Okay, so <laughs> what was going on in Horrible History 16th century? I don't know. I don't know. Then, uh, and if you're interested in a king, then the chap to look at really from this perspective is Henry VIII, because... Oh, I can do of... a lot on Henry VIII. I, oh, yeah. He was, he was a big fat man. Yeah, I can do that. That helps me. <laughs> 
Well, that's good because before he became that fat man, um, Henry VIII was um, a, a quite a good student of music. Of course, it was you know, part of the, the, um, the ritual of becoming a noble in those days. You had to learn various things like jousting and dancing and so forth. And, and music was, was an important part of that. And most of them, I probably paid a degree of lip service to it. But Henry was genuinely good. I mean, there's a manuscript that survives from his court, which includes pieces that are by him. Now, of course, there are examples elsewhere where kings are alleged to have written pieces of music, and we're not sure they really did. You know, it could have been one of their courtiers doing it on their behalf. But Henry's genuinely looks to be his own work. And they're pretty good, actually. I mean, we've all heard of green sleeves. That's the sort of famous one, which, of course, Henry VIII didn't write. Um, Unfortunately, he couldn't have written that because (laughs) the musical style is is way out of his time. It's a bit like saying that, uh, I don't know, Queen Victoria wrote something by super tramp you know it just couldn't have happened but no he was um he, he appeared to be a genuinely good uh, musician he played lots of instruments and, and the pieces that he wrote are actually pretty decent so um yeah he was a good chap a, a real renaissance man in the sense he was into everything and was that something uh, whether you can answer it but was that something that people tended to do in that period of many people would play musical instruments or is it a royal well, sort of um, time spending <laughs> occupation with little else to do. Well, music fell into two camps in those days, much as it does now. There was the, and here again, our listener won't appreciate this, but here I'm doing the sort of inverted commas in there. There was the, the classical music of the period, and then there was the pop music of the period. Um, so Henry was being trained in what was sort of the classical end of the spectrum. But the vast majority of people who played music at that time were were pop musicians, you know, much as they are today. Um, and uh, we can see that, that you know, these, this, these two sort of polarised ends of the spectrum of music are represented in in the surviving sources but Henry was was learning the posh stuff and of course when you look at the sources that survive it's the pop stuff that's the really tricky stuff to to resurrect because mm-hmm. much as today if you go to see well super tramp or whatever pop groups they have these days I've no idea um, <laughs> they, they don't stand there with a music stand and the music in front of them you know they play from memory it's an oral tradition um, and that was very much how the dance music and the popular songs of, of Henry's time were and really we're pretty odd in the western classical tradition in writing our music down very few musics of the world are actually written so um, we are the odd ones out in that respect but of course if something's an oral tradition and it's not being written down how do you know what it sounded like this is the big problem that we have Um, there is a little bit that is written but it's only the tip of a huge iceberg that has um, faded away Mm. Well, and I think that's what we were saying about the difficulty with our knowledge of music in that period is, well, we have none. Yes, that's true. The knowledge that we have is little bits that we would have gleaned mainly from TV and film. Yeah. And therefore, not necessarily the most precise, (laughs) accurate (laughs) reproduction of what would have been around at the time. That's right. Cue me shouting at the television whenever any of these so-called <laughs> historical dramas come on, because yes, very often what you get is this kind of cliched impression of what we sort of popularly imagine Tudor or other periods of music sound like. But actually, it, it often didn't and can be a bit of a shock to the system when you you hear it for what it really is. It's not quite what you expect sometimes. Well, we started talking about what instruments we could identify from that kind of period, and about the only one we could think of was the lute. The lute. 
Mm. Oh, the lute. Yes. Well, the lute was like the, the guitar of its day. And again, it could it was like the guitar. It was a good dual purpose instrument because you could play the classical kind of repertoire on it. But you could also play the, the sort of lighter pop stuff as well. So mm. it's quite a versatile instrument. And of course, lutes, you know, you can just stick it in its case, put it on your back and off you go. So if you're an itinerant musician going around entertaining people, then lutes a great thing to take because it's mm. quick and easy. And, you know, the same thing applies to the guitar today. These things often have sort of parallels in, in present day music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the ukulele. The ukulele, very good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Less so in the classical sense, though. So uh, uh, the other one we identified was the long sort of trumpet thing, which would announce arrivals. Um, Yes. I mean, trumpets were used for ceremonial purposes. They weren't really a, an instrument that you played tunes on. And so you're absolutely right. Arrivals, fanfares um, were very much their function. So they were more um, a sort of functional instrument rather than a musical one um, at that time. And it was only when you get into the sort of Baroque period, a couple of hundred years later, that they started to use trumpets more for melodic music. So all the sounds you produced in your trumpet were purely the ones that you could get with your lips using oh, mm-hmm. sort of embouchure to, to get harmonics and so on. So it's ha- Using what? Embouchure. That's the, the way in which you apply your mouth to an instrument. So if you're a trumpeter, you put it up against the mouthpiece and you, you stretch your lips tight. And if you're an oboe player, for example, you, you grip the reed in your mouth in a, in a different way to manipulate the sound. So that's, that's your embouchure. That's an embouchure. embouchure. It's quite yeah. a lovely word. It's good, isn't it? Your bush, yeah, you see, is your mouth. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, brilliant. So, what instruments were there then? Sorry, well, I'm stopping you. Drink, 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 I'll take a quick sweep before I go into Because <laughs> it could be quite a long list. <laughs> it, well, it is a long list, yes. I suppose we'll have to be a bit selective. But, I mean, all the, the families of instruments that we have today were represented. So keyboard instruments, for example, you had organs, um, both in church, and you could have chamber organs in your uh, in your great chamber. Um and uh, there were the virginals, which was an instrument which Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth, was was said to have played. They um, sound the like a band, don't the they? Virginals. The virginals. They they sound like a actually they sound more like a Christian rock group, if you're honest. <laughs> Well, in, in Henry's day, the versionals was a, a stringed keyboard instrument. It was a bit like um, a harpsichord, but the strings went from side to side in front of you, from left to right. We're gesticulating again, but I'm sure you can imagine. Whereas the modern, more more modern harpsichord, the strings stretch away from you. And um, of course, the, the name virginals, I mean, it, you know, it obviously has the obvious connotations, but we think it does come from the, the Latin virgo, a virgin. Um, and they mm. were certainly... Um, uh, an instrument that were favoured by ladies. And it was one of those, whereas men would play manly instruments, they were listing <laughs> what it was acceptable to play as men and women. What they would do today, I don't know, they'd probably have a fit with all the different gender sort of uh, variations. But uh, but ladies would play the virginals um, in their, their sort of boudoirs, I suppose. So those were the keyboard main keyboard instruments of the time. But of course, uh, there were loads of others. Um, in terms of brass instruments, not so many because they were still relatively early in their sort of development so uh, you get things there's a wonderful instrument called a sack butt which is basically a an early type of trombone um they were used quite widely um but it, i suppose it's really woodwind where you get the interesting ones um mm. and most uh, renaissance instruments that we think of are woodwind instruments of one kind or another particularly the reed instruments because um it's a strange thing but the tudors loved buzzing sounds and most of the instruments that were developed at this time produce a sort of 
buzz noise in one way or another, uh, either naturally or if they didn't produce a buzz sound to start with, they, they adapted them in various ways so that they would. So you take, for example, a nice sort of civilised, sensible, calm gin-sounding instrument like a harp, and they would make yeah. it buzz by putting things called brays on them, which are like little bits of wood that jangle against the, the, the wooden frame of the harp and produce this sort of strange buzzing sound. <laughs> a bit like putting a ticker on your bike when you ride along. That's, that's showing my yes. youth, isn't it? The 1980s and put a yes. little bit of plastic that, Gosh, that yes. makes the noise. I remember those. Uh, yeah, it was very much like that, yes. And, and just as annoying, I would say, when you listen to it. <laughs> it's, it was a sound that was clearly valued then. Yeah. Um, and most of the, the, the woodwind instruments are not the sort of smooth, gentle instruments like our modern flute, but they were these buzzy things. They sound almost like kazoos or comb and paper, but it was clearly a sound oh, they liked. I love liked. a kazoo. <laughs> you like a kazoo? Well, th- then the Renaissance is for you. because You're going to love this music. I mean, if we start off with, with perhaps one of the archetypal instruments of the Tudor period is um, the crumhorn. Now, I'm oh. holding this up to the listener who probably can't see it. So if you'd like to imagine a walking stick with um, quite a large hand. It does, yeah. But quite yeah. a short, straight bit. But it does look like the handle of a walking stick. It does. And then down the length of it, the straight bit, you've got holes here, which are a bit like your school recorder. Mm. And then at the top of the instrument, um, the reed is actually hidden away inside this bit at the top. They call that a wind cap. Um, And probably the reason for that is these instruments were often used outdoors. And if you're outdoors and you're jostling through crowds and all the rest of it, your delicate reed could easily be damaged. But if it's hidden away inside this bit, then that's fine. But, and there is a but, um, most wind players today, things like oboes and bassoon Mm. clarinetists, they have the the, the reed in their mouth using the embouchure we talked about earlier to modify the tone so you can get a better sound, you can get dynamics, you can change the intonation, the pitch of it. Um, but if your reed is stuck away inside the top of the instrument where you can't get to it, you can't do those things. So these instruments um, are quite tricky to play well. They're easy to play, but they're hard to play well. Um, <laughs> But there it is, the crumb horn. The name um, crumb, we, you know, we, today we talk about things that are crummy, they're bad. Mm, yeah. um, and some people might say it's a good name for a crumb horn, really. But the, the original crumb was a German word that meant bent or broken. So it's a bent horn. Uh. And nobody really knows why it's this strange shape, because it actually makes them jolly tricky to make. But it mm. probably is because there was an earlier version of this that had a sort of animal horn, like a goat horn or a cow uh. horn. And you said it's like the archetypal instrument of the time, but I've never heard of it and never seen one. Where did they go and where did you find that one? Well, uh, it's curious you should ask that. We've been talking about Henry uh, VIII. And in Britain, um, the only place where we know for sure that crumb horns were used was actually Henry's court. And that was because he was very keen on importing musicians and musical Mm -hmm. instruments from all over Europe. So these are mostly found in northern Europe, sort of Germanic countries, Flanders, that sort of area. Um, And some of his imported musicians clearly brought them in with him. Um, We have no evidence they were played anywhere else in in Britain at the time. Um, And the reason they disappeared really is to, is again, goes back to that business that the reed is hidden away. You can't contact with it. Um, As music developed, it became more expressive. People wanted louds and softs from the same instruments. They wanted changes of tone colour, which you can't do on a crumb horn. And so it was felt that it it didn't respond to those expressive needs. Mm. So the instruments that could do that survived and the ones that couldn't fell by the wayside. Can we hear it? You can indeed, yes. Now, the crumb horn is a 
a slightly sensitive instrument and <clears throat> I haven't played this one for about 20 minutes so um <laughs> we'll see how it goes. that as well <laughs> i'd listen to that if it was thrown in my period drama yeah. and well, well actually and and that is a very recognizable yeah, period drama ways, yeah yes um and this one is is quite a little one this one is uh, i suppose about 18 inches long that's gosh what's that in centimeters it's um about 45 something like that. so mm. this is a, a relatively small one they came in five different sizes you can get great big ones um and they would play them in in consorts in groups of all the same thing so you know one sounds pretty cool on its own but if you get five or six of them all going at once it's a, it's a yeah. great sound and it's again it's one of those sounds that we sort of lost really from music yeah so you get a group of crumhorn players <laughs> yes 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 a consult is the is the technical term for them um Superb. but um, and you asked me earlier i mean how where did it come from how do we know what what a crumhorn is like given that they're such a lost instrument and uh, we're very lucky when it comes to the later end of the renaissance because Prior to that, most pictures of instruments are pretty unreliable. The, the people who drew them were just drawing from memory and they weren't musicians themselves. So they, they put all sorts of inaccuracies in. But there was a chap in um, Germany called Michael Praetorius, who in 1619 published this enormous treatise on music and it covered everything you could think of. And part of it was called De Organographia. Um, the organo bit of it, not just about organs. It, organology is the study of instruments generally. Um, and the graphy of it obviously is drawing. So this was a volume of drawings of instruments of his time and earlier. And he was the first chap to produce real scale drawings. So you mm. get drawings of instruments like this. <clears throat> and then next to it, you get like a little ruler drawn in. Um, not a modern one. It's a, a Brunswick foot, which I think was slightly longer. Um, but his drawings are so good that you can reconstruct instruments from, from them. Even though the the originals have, have in many cases disappeared, there are a few crumhorns left. But I mean, the one I'm playing today is, is actually um, reconstructed from Praetorius's drawing. And not only did he draw them accurately, but he also told us some of the tricks of the trade. So there are some things you can do with a crumhorn that we perhaps might not have guessed. But he talks about them, the ways in which you can change the pitch by blowing uh, in a different way, and so forth. And that's the sort of thing I suppose we might have discovered it by accident. But mm. Praetorius gives it sort of credence by telling us there and then that that's how it was done mm. and so does anyone play the crumb horn anymore well i do um <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it is used because um, the crumb horn became a bit of a joke really because when the um the early music revival took place in the 1970s it was one of the first instruments that amateur groups um started to play oh. and they, they started off with recorders because that was mm. the thing they'd learned at school and then they discovered that actually the fingering of a recorder is very much like this and they started to play the crumb horn and as i said earlier it's easy to play but it's quite difficult to play well for a mm. whole host of technical reasons I won't bore you with. But they, the, it, it can sound excruciating in the wrong hands. Um, and a number of um, amateur groups started in the 70s playing these with, you know, with the very best of intentions and sounded mm. terrible. Um, <laughs> and it, it kind of got the early music revival off to a bad start. Really, yeah. People yeah. treated it as a bit of a joke. Um, and it was only a little bit later that professional players started to sort of get to grips with these things and find out what they could really do that that they began to appreciate what, what a crumhorn consort could really sound like in the right hands. So um, amateur players tended to play the, the much simpler instruments. They would play 
five sort of flutes and drums and uh, the, those sort of things that you can make m much more cheaply, whereas something that requires a bit more skill, a bit more time and effort and technology to produce would have been much more expensive then. So, yes, um, a crumb horn would probably have been an instrument of a professional player back then, yeah. And so there'd be professional um, bands that would sort of tour around in um, different places whether they're in the palaces or in yes, popular I mean, if, music <laughs> venues <laughs> in a local town yes um there were certainly itinerant groups but um i mean if you were a rich noble and certainly if you were a king like henry um you wouldn't bother with that you'd have your own resident domestic musicians professionals who would play for you so um you didn't have to worry about that but if you were a bit lower down the social scale then you would access your music probably from traveling groups who would mm. um do that there were most towns had a, a, a group of musicians called the weights and they were sort of multifunctional they had jobs like for example um looking out for invaders on the horizon for checking that the place wasn't on fire and warning you if it was waking you up in the morning but also providing the music for ceremonial occasions and also just for sort of partying it really they would play mm. for um uh, you know for pubs and taverns earn a few extra groats or whatever as they went and um uh, so that's where the, the average sort of chap in the street would have got his music from. Um, but of course, the only music you heard then was live music. Um, and mm -hmm. it would have been a real treat to have heard it. I mean, you wouldn't have heard anything like as much as you do unless you happen to play the flute or something yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but hearing a, a group play would have been, uh, you know, a real special occasion. It feels very like going to see a concert now, yeah. really, when, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And it would stick in your mind. And that's why, um, though we don't have um, many sort of really accurate accounts of music performance in those days, what we do have is lots of people speaking effusively of occasions when they heard musicians. And they mm -hmm. may not be able to report to us accurately what they heard. But the fact that they heard it was something of note and, and, and they felt important to, to sort of record. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the other thing I know about the Crumhorn is that you had a connection with a Crumhorn being linked to a band that Anya will have heard about, and that <laughs> yeah, being Dolce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yes, yes. Well, um, the reason I'm playing you this particular Crumhorn is because... Um, Two of my others are at uh, at the moment off up to London and they're being used for uh, a track for Alt or Alt J's new new album coming out. So, uh, yes, that's something that's to listen out so for. So exciting. there you go. The Crumhorn being relevant in, you know, contemporary pop music. Is so exciting. That's so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> and the exciting thing about that is that that means that there is a new Alt J album. Yes, that is an exciting thing. Yeah. And that it has a crumb horn yes. in it. And which... that now I will be that really cool person who, when I listen to that song, and go, actually, fun fact about this. <laughs> and you can go, I know where <laughs> that comes from. Yeah. And then from. I can tell them, like, history about it. And I'm like, listen, here's the thing. And everyone's going to think I'm really clever. That's and then they'll I'm buy you a gin. <laughs> That's the best part about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so as well as the crumb horn, what mm -hmm. other things were they playing? Well, um, it, we, we talked a little earlier about um, the way in which technology was developing for instruments. And um, I've got another instrument here that is a great example of that. In fact, probably the extreme example of that. It's another woodwind instrument. And it, it bears the, the wonderful name of racket. 
And I'll tell you why it's called a racket in a minute. You may perhaps decide for yourselves. <laughs> We're looking at um, a cylinder of wood. I suppose it's about eight inches. And then at the end, there's a sort of nozzle that comes out of it, which has got a reed in it uh, sticking mm. out the top. So it's a reed a bit like it's a bit the like the shape of a sort of wooden bottle. I oh, suppose. So I like was going to go. It made me think of a toilet brush holder with a, a toilet, toilet brush holder, which yeah. I thought yes, was a bit actually. disrespectful, but it does look like that. No, <laughs> yeah. Toilet brush holder is, is pretty close. What they thought it looked like back in the Renaissance. Um, was uh, actually a type of firework, um, mm. uh, a type of firework in Germany called a, a ranket. Um, and uh. from ranket, we get our English word racket for this instrument, but we also get the word rocket for our firework, you see. Mm. And the original rockets weren't the kind of thing with a stick coming out the bottom that goes sort of whoosh up into the sky. They sat on the ground and out of this nozzle at the top came sort of coloured sparks that spewed out. Uh, you know, we get some, something similar in firework displays today. You can buy them for your garden if you so wish. Um, and, um, and they looked just like this. So that's why they called it a, a, a ranket. And then we corrupt it to, to rack it. Uh, it I, I must say, it doesn't look like something musical. easy to play. No, <laughs> no. it looks like no. something that you're going to pump or take apart. You know, it doesn't look like an easy to hold musical instrument. It, it is tricky in certain ways. One of the trickiest things about it is the fact that it's got um, 12 holes for your fingers. And of course, most of us don't have 12 fingers. So... <laughs> Um, you have to indulge in this kind of finger gymnastics and play two with two holes with one finger in many cases. But um, no, but it's got a hidden secret, you see, because it looks you know, pretty sort of boring from the outside, really. But inside, it's actually got nine bores. So there are nine holes that are drilled top to bottom through it. And then at either end, there's a sort of gadgetry which connects them up. So you've got um, nine holes times eight inches um, connected up into one great long tube that goes up and down up and down inside the instrument so although it's quite a small thing the actual length of tube inside it is quite long now the longer your tube of course the lower your note so the racket was kind of like the sort of um the subwoofer instrument of the renaissance it produces you know these ridiculously low um notes so uh, i think the listener needs to sort of turn up their bass uh, on their, their amplifiers <laughs> Um, and I'll give you a little burst of, of racketing. I'll start near the top and we'll see if we can go down to the bottom. Again, I haven't played this for a little while. They're a little bit sort of temperamental if you haven't worn them up, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> now, <laughs> that is the reaction that, that rackets frequently get. In fact, it just sounds really play. like our dog fart. <laughs> Well, there you go. Um, perhaps you've been underestimating the sound of your dog, but it's a, you know, it's a ridiculously low note, you know, a very low note indeed from such a small instrument. But these again, were this real vibrating mm. sound. Yes, to it. yes, it's that buzz again. You see, um, and when you're playing it, uh, this is something which you know, if you ever get the chance, do try this. You get the most incredible sort of um, visceral experience because the whole thing is sort of vibrating. Your face is sort of wobbling in front of you <laughs> with the the, <laughs> the effect of the reed. It's actually very satisfying, I have to say. But, uh, <laughs> That's yeah, it's a marvellous thing. But there were dangers with these instruments. And um, good old Praetorius, this again is another one that was reconstructed from Praetorius's drawings. Mm. And um, what, what some of the sort of fun facts that he told us about these things was that back in those days, um, dental hygiene wasn't what it is today. In fact, it wasn't anything, I don't think. Mm. And so food used to get stuck in people's 
crevices in their well he didn't have feelings you know sorry this is getting ghastly um and during the course of playing your crumb uh, your uh, your racket uh, bits of food would go down through these tubes oh. and of course you can't get it out very easily you know you can't sort of shove something out up into mm. key so all this food used to sort of um, become really fetid and eventually it would, mm. it would get to the point where there were a number of recorded occasions where where rackets exploded with the you know, the gases that built up inside so you know real risk <gasps> assessment material this be very careful <laughs> brush your teeth before you play your racket <laughs> Oh, brilliant. So brilliant. the whole thing would explode. I'm going to write something everywhere. Something in the future which is going to have that in because, oh, what a good mental image. But also a disgusting one. But I, wow. I find it fascinating because I cannot comprehend how somebody could come up with that kind of mm. instrument. It just, yes. you know, the recorder, you can kind of understand it. It's a long, hollow stick with some holes. But that, just with, with all yeah. the tubes and everything inside, just seems completely bonkers. It's also, I mean, actually, I mean, we, we joke about it, but actually the technological achievement that it represents is, is quite intense because, for one thing, you boring the, the nine holes up and down, that's relatively easy. But to get the finger holes, you've then got to know exactly where to sort of drill through so that you don't puncture the holes that you don't want to um, mm-hmm to spoil but and yet to come out in exactly the right place on exactly the right one of those nine bores today it's difficult to make these if even if you've got you know computer controlled power drills but they're using really simple sort of hand pumped or hand turned Mm. drills um knowing exactly where to go in and exactly what angle to take and so it must have taken a huge amount of i should imagine very maddening um trial and error to to work out how to make Mm -hmm. one of these things Mm. Um, and even today you know makers sweat over them (laughs) (laughs) which is why you don't see many of them i I think that is it yes (laughs) now i know you've got another one there. I do. I do have one more thing here. There, there is one more trick. Yes, and this again, we go back to good old Praetorius. You know, he, he what a marvelous chap he must have been. Um, he um, drew this, which is a, as you can see, well, you know, oh, what is like, that? It's like bagpipes, but not. <laughs> yes, exactly. These are indeed a type of bagpipe, but not the sort that you experience on your Highland holiday. Um, this is a, a type of bagpipe called a doody, um, and they um, were a type. <laughs> It is a good name, isn't it? Doody. You know, you're, you're, I'm a dude who plays the doody. Um, <laughs> they were used in North Germany, but the name is the clue. It tells us they didn't really come from North Germany. And we still have a type of bagpipe called a doodah today, which they use in places like Hungary and other sort of um, Eastern European countries. But um, the doody um, travelled across the North Sea to Scotland and today, instead of, um, <clears throat> we, we, we sort of hear the, the Highland pipes, which are a relatively modern type of pipe. But before they came along, the Scots were playing something much more subtle and quieter, uh, mm. the, the lowland pipes, uh, small pipes. And the duty is very, very similar to those. And it shows those sort of connections that existed in Europe where people were sharing ideas and sharing technology and sharing musical experiences. So um, although today the Scottish version uses a bellows that you pop under your arm and so you pump away with your with your elbow Um, and these are mouth blown so you have a blow pipe in your mouth Um, but they're pretty much the same sort of instrument really Um, but these you'll be glad to know are indoor pipes so they're nice and quiet (laughs) and (laughs) yeah because the the bagpipes they're sort of not indoor yeah 
can be incredibly loud. Yeah, they can. Yes, because they were they were developed like that so you could hear them on the the field of war and so forth. But um, mm. um, but they, these are much more for for indoor use. And of course, the bagpipe does you know what it says on the tin. The bag is a reservoir for the air, mm. so you can um, puff into that. You've got one pipe to blow into. You've got three pipes here, which are drones. So in a minute, you'll hear they just produce one note each. So it's kind of like an accompaniment to the mm-hmm. to the tune, and the tune is played on. The third bit here, which is the chanter. And again, it's got that sort of um, look of the recorder about it, although the fingering on these is, is quite weird and different. It's a, it's a bit of an unwieldy beast, isn't it? It looks like some kind of dead animal with four legs that just yeah. keep flopping around everywhere. Yes, and the reason for that is that the early bagpipes were literally that. You would take a dead animal, like a goat mm. or a sheep, um, you'd scoop out all the ghastly bits inside and you know preserve the skin in some way, and then you would put pipes into the, 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 the neck hole and the um, leg holes mm. and so forth and sew up the others and um there you'd have it that would be the bag so it, it was literally a dead animal dead at one animal. time now the bagpipe um, needs to be sort of um, primed first of all so i will puff up and get it going and then <laughs> then we'll see I'm going to make a pop culture reference again. You remember Mr. Tumless in Narnia and his little yeah. pan flute? That's what that reminds me of. It sounds, it's got that sort of beautiful moving melody. Wistful. Yeah, wistful. Yeah. And really not what I was expecting because when you start to sort of blow it up and it's just like this, and you think, and, mm-hmm. and especially having listened to the other two instruments, I'm thinking, golly, this is going to be a real buzzy kind of thing. But it's not. Yes. But it's got a real melody to it. It's really yeah. quite soft. Yes, it's a really gentle sound. And again, it was used indoors. But um, I mean, the wonderful thing about the bagpipes is there are so many different types. So um, we, we, we have a number of different types in the British Isles today. So you've got the Ulian pipes from Ireland. You've got um, the Northumbrian pipes, the two types of Scottish pipes. So just four in the British Isles. But if you went back um, five, six hundred years, you'd find that you know, pretty much every region of Britain, every county almost, um, mm. would have its own type of bagpipes. And then that was replicated across Europe. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of different versions, all of them local. Did you have anybody who could show you how to, or did you just have to figure it out? Um, no, that, it's a good point, actually. I suppose it's something I've never really thought about, but a lot of it I just had to pick up myself. I mean, there are mm. one or two tutors that sort of give you some ideas. But, um, and of course, if you're, you know, really serious and really good nowadays we're lucky because there are courses available at you know, mm-hmm. the, the music colleges that will help you with that but certainly when I was at um, a sort of university age there, there was very little of it at all so yeah it was pretty much self-taught which is kind of reflected mm-hmm. in you know, my terrible playing really but um but the further you go back in history, the less useful written music becomes, because, of course, it was part of this oral tradition. And if you go back to sort of medieval dances, 
we find that there are, I think it, you can count it on the fingers of perhaps three hands, the number of medieval dance pieces that survive mm. out of hundreds and thousands that there originally were. Um, so how do you know what the music sounds like? Well, you, you read it off the page. But actually, when you come to look at it, you find that all the information that you need to, to play a piece of music today. So what's the instrument? How fast does it go? How loud is it? You know, how do we interpret this? What sort of expression do we use? It's very little of that is there, if any. I mean, going back to the, the crumb horn, we, it's extraordinary to think that there is just one piece of music that we can be sure was actually written for the crumb horn. Just one piece of music. Just one. Yeah. And it was written by a composer who has the unfortunate name of Scheidt. And it's a very <laughs> fine piece of music. But, you know, what were all these um, crumb horn players playing? Um, and we think that what they were borrowing. playing? <laughs> we think they were borrowing from other instruments and from vocalists. But we, we know not 100% sure. And there are sometimes you know, little lucky discoveries. Um, going back to Henry and the crumb horn, um, I was looking, because my main research interest is in keyboard music, um, and I was looking at a manuscript of keyboard music associated with the Tudor court. And when I played it under the fingers, you could feel it didn't feel right. It wasn't keyboard music that was written by a person who understood the keyboard. Um, and looking at it again, I, I realised that it was basically three lines of music that have been sort of cobbled together for one person to play and if you unraveled it and wrote the three lines of music out separately you got a nice piece of music for three instruments and then I had this kind of sort of lightning moment where I realized that the the range of the the, the three parts fitted perfectly on crumb horns because crumb horns have a strange range um, now that doesn't necessarily prove that they were this was crumbhorn music, mm. but but it could have been, and it's you know it's it's little sort of insights like that that you stumble across often quite by chance mm. that give you the insight to um, reconstructing this music. Also, so going back to this Bible of instruments, are there ones mm. in there that you look at and go, I have no idea what this guy is mm. talking about? Yes, because um, there there are some instruments in there where we think he didn't know what he was talking about either. <laughs> um, he'd heard about them and he tried to. Um, imagine what they were like um, and uh, very often they he, he just got it wrong mm-hmm. but you know sometimes you can be surprised by this because there was um, uh, an instrument um, it was oh God, it was a type of shawm a shawm is like a sort of early oboe like instrument quite loud mm-hmm. uh, woodwind again buzzy um, and it was called a still shawm it's like a quieter version of the shawm he tells us and he drew a picture of it and, and musicologists have been looking at it for years and saying no that's that can't be right no he must have made that one up and then of course they they discovered the the wreck of the mary rose uh, lying yes. in the solent and started to sift through all the stuff and found a number of instruments and lo and behold what did they find but an instrument that was pretty much just like Praetorius drew it as a, a still shawl so you know we doubted him for all those years and kabam it, it, he was proved right so you know you do have to give credit where it's due sometimes and some of these stranger instruments that we think might not really have existed well you know maybe they did that's really exciting so it's mm. a bit like finding treasure mm. it is oh literally from a musical point of view yes absolutely <laughs> Oh, there we are. <laughs> it's been really interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much, David. And thank you for bringing along the instruments because I found that amazing. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been great. And also, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it whilst drinking gin. This is a brilliant concept. I love it. <laughs> thank you. And really good gin <laughs> recommendation. Good gin. Um, I wonder whether we should have gone for the not so strong version I've i'm got really it. enjoying it i'm really enjoying it but i am also going my head already feels a little bit <laughs> swooshy 
<laughs> well, I think you know, a lot of people would have enjoyed Renaissance and medieval music in the company of a lot of this kind of thing. So, um, so I true. think that's an authentic experience that we're having here. So that's great. Brilliant. Well, thank you so, so thank much. You. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> what have we learned? Well, I have learned that the world's strongest cheer it's bloody strong is is really easy to drink mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> really easy to drink easy, i'm really drink. conscious that i'm very lemony quite a lot yes quite yes a lot. i have to stop myself what have we learned about I... renaissance music well i have learned that the bagpipe-esque instrument because it's my favorite it was my favorite it was beautiful it i was really enjoyed really it lovely i yeah. was um, I find bagpipes really weird because they are like little dead animals with the legs sticking up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't know that they used to actually be dead animals either. So there we go. No, well, I knew up. I knew that it was the sort of stomach mm-hmm. that was made for the bag, but I never realised that they put the pipes where the legs Whoa. were. It's just like <laughs> you know, we just pretend this is a dead animal, even mm-hmm. if it's a dead animal. Um, but the sound of that. I thought was lovely. Yes. Really, really nice. Mm-hmm. It was really good. Um, three instruments I've never seen before. Never seen before. Probably never heard will before. not see again, I would say. I'd say it was a bit well, of a Well, we are going well, to see a crumb horn again, aren't we? We are going to see a crumb Well, we might not see it. We might just hear it. We might just hear it, but I'll be listening. I'll be listening. <gasps> Oh, Jay, Jay, if you Jay. are listening to this, we're very excited. Very excited <laughs> to go... <gasps> There's the crumb horn. Mm-hmm. We know the background of that. It is true. I think for me, mm-hmm. early music in yes. my mind gets put in with classical music, which is all about mm-hmm. sitting there and mm-hmm. having to listen. Which is what I hate something. about it because it I like being doing stuffy. If I'm in a car or on a train, I love nothing more than listening to an album and really enjoying it. But I hate the idea that you can't ever really enjoy music unless you are sitting in a particular place in a particular way really listening because I can really enjoy music when I'm doing other stuff sometimes the best time to enjoy music is when I'm taking off my makeup and having a boogie in my pants well and I reckon that those kind of buzzy instruments would it be actually could really get you boogie yeah <laughs> I quite like that whole they did have a real sort of a pick-me-up sound that mm. just goes go on then go on move do something yeah i mean i probably wouldn't want them all the time because i feel like it would end up after a couple of Get songs tinnitus. i think it would set my teeth on it <laughs> you know how like a toothbrush if you get it at the wrong angle and it sort of buzzes mm-hmm, against your tooth mm-hmm, it's kind of like mm-hmm. um <laughs> another thing i learned mm-hmm. and that is we are don't know so much mm-hmm. about that period of music and so there's a lot of detective work yeah which sounds quite fun and that the most amazing man in the world that i can't remember his name put together the book of instruments which is something i can't remember his name but how fabulous is it to have people like that yeah that do think do you know what would be really good is if i just catalogued everything But I think we learned a lot and got to experience musical instruments. We did. And I really enjoyed that interactive learning things. And on that note, I think it's time to go. (laughs) So thank you, David. Thank you, David. Renaissance Music. And we end. 
Sarah, shall I tell them where they can find us? I think you ought to, because you're the young person, so you know where we can be found. It's true. You can find us on Twitter at Topic Gin. And the same on Instagram. Yeah. And that's all wrong, because Facebook said in the water, TikTok, neither of us are young enough for... And I forget what other ones there are. We've got a website. We do have a website. We have ginandtopic.com. Photos by Matthew Mitchell. Yeah. <laughs>